Welcome to the markets. Hello again, Orion Samuelson, along with Max Armstrong and a special market guest to talk about what happened on Wall Street in the feedlots and the wheat fields of the U.S. It's our weekly get-together, and we look forward to your company. And we always begin with the story on Wall Street. And uh, we're coming to the end of uh, a surprisingly strong period because the headline, Wall Street wraps up its best June in decades as the G20 convenes. But Wall Street advanced today in heavy trading with the S&P 500 and the Dow closing the book on their best June in generations. Coming ahead of the much-anticipated trade talks between President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit now underway in Japan. All three major U.S. stock indices gained ground at the close of the week, the month, the quarter, and the first half of the year, during which time the U.S. stock market has had a remarkable run. Listen to these numbers. The S&P 500 had its best June since 1955. The Dow posted its biggest June percentage gain since 1938, when the Great Depression was coming to an end. And from the start of 2019, after investors fled stocks amid fears of a global economic slowdown which sent stock markets tumbling in December, the benchmark S&P 500 jumped 17 and a third percent. That's its largest first half increase since 1997. Quoting one analyst uh, who made this comment, the market came to the realization that the world is not going to end. That, according to John Hamm, financial advisor at New England Investment and Retirement Group in Massachusetts. He went on to say, Federal Reserve Chair Powell did a 180 since the Fed's last interest rate hike, And that's put wind in our sails in the first half of the year. And while the president expressed hopes that the meeting with Xi at the G20 summit will be productive, but he said he had not made any promises about a reprieve from the escalating tariffs. And Ham made one more comment. Everybody is focused on the Trump-G meeting, and most investors are hoping for a ceasefire. At this point, it's just a question of how much of a ceasefire we get. Financial stocks led the gains in the S&P 500 and the Dow after the big U.S. banks passed the Federal Reserve stress test with the central bank giving the companies a clean bill of health. And the S&P 500 Bank Index gained 2.4% today. So, as we come to the end of the week, the Dow Industrial Average up 73 points, closing at 26,599. The S&P 500 up 16.8 points, and that ended at 2941.76, and the NASDAQ composite added 38 points to end the week and the month and the quarter at 8,006. 
All 11 major sectors in the S&P 500 ended the session in positive territory. Shares of Apple today dropped nine-tenths of a percent following its announcement that design head Joni Ive is leaving the company, and separately, the Wall Street Journal reported the iPhone maker would move its Mac Pro production to China from the United States. Constellation Brands reported better-than-expected quarterly results and raised its full-year guidance due to healthy beer demand, and its shares went up four and a half percent for the day. In economic news, consumer spending up moderately in May, prices edged higher, implying a slowdown in economic growth and benign inflation pressures, providing the Fed rationale for a possible interest rate cut in July. So quite a day, quite a week on Wall Street. And looking at a couple of other um, closings today, oil prices fell today but posted their second straight week of gains ahead of the trade talks. The most active Brent crude futures down 93 cents to settle at $64.74 a barrel. And U.S. crude uh, lost 96 cents today to settle at $58.47 a barrel. And of course, the organization of uh, petroleum exporting countries, OPEC, and some other non members, including Russia, will hold meetings on July 1st and 2nd in Vienna to decide whether to extend their supply cuts. One analyst said you had a wave of selling come in advance of the OPEC and non-OPEC meeting on Monday where it's fully expected they are going to roll over the producer production cuts, according to an analyst of the oil industry. So now let's look ahead to next week. It's a holiday week, a shortened trading week because of the 4th of July holiday. So not much in the way of activity. The Labor Department expected on Friday to report that non-farm payrolls in June rose to 160,000 from 75,000 in May. The unemployment rate is expected to remain unchanged at 3.6. And on Wednesday, the Census Bureau releases the international trade deficit. That's likely to have widened to $53.5 billion in May from $50.8 billion in April. And on the same day, the Labor Department expected to show the initial jobless claims fell 222,000 for the week ended June 29th, uh, had fallen to that, or will have fallen to that from 227. Again, uh, Federal Reserve uh, regional governors will be on the speaking circuit. And uh, the Institute for Supply Management scheduled to report Manufacturing Activity Index. Construction spending is expected to have declined. So that's what's ahead for the week. And... uh, Since we're coming to the end of June Dairy Month, we're going to spend our time talking about the dairy situation when we return with that Max Armstrong visiting with Cody Costner 
of Rice Dairy in Chicago. That comes when we continue on the markets. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. As we're getting ready to exit June Dairy Month, we thought we'd talk about the dairy economy for a moment or two with Cody Coster from Rice Dairy here in Chicago. And Cody, you have a background in the dairy industry. You grew up on a dairy farm. I did. I did, yes. My family has a dairy in uh, northern Michigan. After college, I worked there for about uh, four and a half, five years, and then transitioned uh, to the big city at Rice Dairy. And the family is still milking cows? Yep, the family is still milking cows. You bailed out on them. I I did. I did. uh, Dad says I got out on the right time. Um, but there's always, you know, that, that option to come back if it uh, presents itself. Let's talk about how the dairy farmer is doing right now. Where is the milk price and where does it need to be? We've, we've languished for a while, haven't we? We have. And I think a big talking point as of recent is a lot of guys talk about basis, right? Basis, milk hauling, transport, um, plants buying, discounted milk. I can tell you in the Midwest, generally, um, right now, fluid milk is a $1.50 under. Um, transporting it from plant to plant farther away than it probably needs to go. And as of recent, because of the flooding and all the bad weather, we've seen corn and soybeans not get in the ground, the alfalfa crop. Uh, I think the tonnage will be there, but I don't think the the protein and the nutrients will be there. Um, so what's happening is we went from about a $15 Class 3 price to maybe a $17, $17.50 Class 3 price. But if you look back eight months ago at $15 Class 3, and corn was at $3.70. Guys were maybe still not making money, maybe breaking even a little bit. We needed a higher milk price. We've got that higher overall milk price, but with all the flooding and everything that's going on, we have seen corn and soybeans take a huge leap. So, you know, people will argue, have we really made a step forward in progress? I would argue that we haven't. The basis is still there, negative 50, uh, negative $1.80. And, and corn prices continue to go higher and higher as, as we get more rain and the growing season gets shorter. We've struggled in some areas with uh, hay supplies, have we not? I mean, that's been a bit of a problem. There was a significant amount of winter kill, we had heard. Yes, we have. We have in the Midwest, there's been a lot of winter kill. There's been a lot of replant. Um, that same alfalfa, get it tore up and get it replanted for first cutting. As you know, the first cutting hasn't really gone as expected, but guys have had to get it off, so we have a good, hopefully, second, third, maybe even fourth cutting. Maybe fourth. Maybe fourth. Maybe. This is one of those years, isn't it? It is. It is. This is one of those years. I was talking to my grandfather when I was home last weekend, um, been in the dairy industry for 65-plus years, and he said, I have never, ever seen this before in my life. He said, this is something that... 2019, you will tell your kids about, and you they will tell their, your grandkids about this thing, too. Um we need perspective like that every now and then in our lives, don't we? We do. We do. It really sat me back and said, okay, this is, this is a bigger deal than I think people really understand. Right? We're, we're in the middle of it, but we still have a growing season. Um, corn that's not in the ground, alfalfa that's not in the ground. You know, in Michigan, you wake up on Saturday at the end of June and it's 50 degrees. That's not helping much of anything right now. You know, looking at the the total milk production of the nation, I was looking back through the past year. Mm -hmm. I think every month of 2018, the total milk output climbed. 
maybe by 1% or a little bit more. That's not been the case as we've come into 2019. I think about every other month we've seen a decline thus far this year, albeit small, in the milk output. That, uh, I guess, is somewhat friendly to the overall situation long term, is it not? That we're maybe beginning to put the brakes on total milk output. Certainly we've cut the herd by about 50,000, I believe, over the past year. Yes, yeah, uh, you are correct. And I believe the past um, March was the first time that we were actually lower in milk production. Um, you know, before that, it was like 36 months or, or three, three and a half years prior to that, where milk production was actually lower. Uh, May milk production just came out last week, week and a half ago, and it was also lower by 0.4%. So you've had two out of the past three months where milk production is actually lower. And what we're seeing throughout the country and different folks that I talk to is is milk production is steadily declining. But if you look at the butter fat, the butter fat is actually ramping up. If you kind of look at a chart, it might be um, year over year up one to one and a half percent, the butter fat compared to the milk production. So that tells me, guys, are we're doing three different things. We are breeding for better butter fat protein components. We are you know, keeping cows cooler in the summer, trying to keep them warmer in the winter here in the Midwest. Um, and, I, and I think the third thing is the, the feed. The, the nutritionists are really diving into this, saying that, hey, guys are not getting paid on the volumes anymore to ship this amount of milk. We're actually getting paid on butter fat and the protein Let's make let's make a ration for that. Let's really get these guys try to get them paid on this. So the efficiency is climbing. We're we're improving, even though the the, the other challenges are out there. Uh, we're milking fewer cows, but the output per cow just keeps on climbing. I mean that's it's remarkable when you look at it. I haven't I haven't seen that on a graph, but it just keeps going on up and up. How how much longer can we do that? That's an interesting point to 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 ponder there. It is. It really. Where's is. the top? You know that's a great question. 10, 15 years ago when people were getting 60, 65, maybe 75, 70 pounds per cow, that was something that we hadn't seen in a long time because of breeding and and new rations kind of put on. Now, if you're into the 90s, into the 100 pounds per cow, even at energy-corrected milk, folks are like, okay, you know, this this is decent. To your point, where do we go? Do we go to 120 pounds? Do we go to 130 pounds per cow? I don't know what that looks like, um, but, but with new technology and new breeding every year, I think the sky's the limit on what we could actually see. We can't have a discussion about dairy without talking about the headline of the past month or so about fair oaks. Has that impacted, in your mind, fluid milk consumption at all? Is there any ripple effect through the industry simply because there was so much negativity attached to that situation? And and you had some of the retailers... You know, being proactive and, pull, I mean, immediately knee-jerk reactions within a matter of hours right. uh, pulling product uh, from the shelves. Do you think that's had any overall impact as far as the nation is concerned? You know, I really don't. I've seen a steady decline in the overall fluid consumption. But that was already going on. That's, that was already been going, going on. on for a long time. Exactly. Uh, families and kids are not sitting down and eating cereal in the morning. I can speak for myself. When I wake up, I'm not eating cereal with a glass of milk. I'm grabbing a granola bar that has whey protein in it. Um, it has yogurt already built into it. We're a grab-and-go community. And I think that is what we are going to continue to be. Everyone's on the go all the time, 24-7. Um, but Fairlife Milk was actually making a big indent in there because of the way that they packaged their milk, because of the way that they represented themselves and what their, you know, the, the casing and everything, um, in the milk. 
So I think a lot of these stores that pulled it off the shelf, I could be wrong, this is completely speculation on my side, are going to realize, hey, regular milk is not selling. This product was actually selling. I think a few other things are going to come out in the in the whole you know fair life thing. There's always two sides to every story. People need to realize that and remember that. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more of these companies kind of bring fair life back in, put it on the shelf um, because those sales are very important to those companies. Great points. And some retailers never changed. Correct. Some of them kept the product right there on the shelf. They did. Uh, elsewhere in the country, you see it. It's very visible right yes. there on the shelf. Yeah. Uh, a perfect example: uh, Walgreens. You can't talk about the dairy situation without discussing cheese. How's the cheese demand? It's good. The, the, the cheese demand domestically seems to be very good. Again, speaking from experience, um, living in Chicago, when you go out to these restaurants, what's the first thing that you order with friends? It's usually an appetizer, uh, maybe some kind of a chip dip with cheese in it. Folks are ordering more cheeseburgers, again, with cheese on it. Going to McDonald's, they're putting double the cheese on some of these burgers and having special offerings for that. Um, I think the demand is still very good. And even the butter, people always talk about these fad diets, if you want to call it, that you know people my age are going through. The more butter that you can consume, I mean, the newest thing is putting butter in your coffee, right? <laughs> half of a stick or quarter stick of butter <laughs> into your coffee. If you can get half of America to do that, it would be incredible. So I think the domestic consumption of these dairy products is still on the rise, and the more that we can prove that it does good for the body, the better off we're going to be, obviously. But swing to the international scene. What's happening there? And I guess you have to talk about China in some way, shape, or form, as big as they are, as big a player as they are. Of course, we've had the trade war going on, but then they've got the African swine fever. Mm-hmm. What about the dairying sector and demand in China? The demand in China we've actually seen in the past 12, maybe even 14 months has really ramped up on the fluid milk and cream side and also the cheese side. Um, we've heard from a couple different people in the industry. Obviously, China is a big pork consumer. There are experts in the country throughout the world that are saying, hey, they had to kill a big, big, big lump sum of the pork. Maybe they start culling some of their cattle to feed the country. I think Dairy got, cattle. Dairy cattle. Um, I think the government is starting to see that, and I believe that you know they jumped up uh, April and May this year. I believe fluid milk and cream imports into China were up above 75,000 metric ton. If you look from 2016 to 2018, they were at or below 60,000 metric ton. So that's saying you know China is definitely coming in here, importing products, getting on the GDT auction that happens every other Tuesday, and getting these products to you know, the, the country and, and, and feeding them. Is some of that coming from the United States? New Zealand has, has typically been the supplier of choice in that part of the world. Has it not simply because of their proximity? It, it has. It has. I think it's a little bit cheaper and a little bit easier to get it, you know, on a freight from New Zealand into China, maybe than it would be from um, the United States into China. And you had alluded to it at the beginning, too. The, the tariff situation is not helping that right now, right? If, if you can go somewhere that you're not arguing with their their leaders of the country, I think it'd be a little bit better business model. So that's hurting us in terms of uh, dairy demand as well I, I at think the moment. It, I think it could be. It, it is just a little bit. But if those, you know, somebody asked me the other day, what if tariffs were taken off into China tomorrow or next week, for an example? And I think that's a very good question. I think that's something that we need to really look at. But how much were we really sending into China in the first place? I, I, we were sending more product into Mexico and, and Canada, right? Our neighbors to the north and south. So I don't know if 
tariffs got taken off next week, if it would, if we would see much of a jump, right? People are saying, well, we'd see $20 milk. I don't think it would be quite that dramatic, um, but, but it would definitely help, right? Every little bit on an export market definitely helps. How important is the export market of the U.S. dairy industry? I think it's extremely important. Um, obviously, um, uh, eating it domestically with family and friends is is important, but there's a lot of people in this world to feed. There's a right. lot of countries that do not make milk as well as we do. I would say America is probably the most efficient at making milk and dairy products in the world. Now it's just finding those different avenues, those different streams to send it to. Is it more than 10% of our dairy output that goes into the world market? I think it is, isn't it? I, I believe it is. I don't know the exact number, uh, but that's still when you think about it as a whole on dairy products. 10% is a lot. Before I let you go, I have to ask you to do a little crystal ball gazing. Let's assume that we don't resolve immediately the, mm-hmm. the trade situation with China. What does the dairy situation look like through the end of this year? How does the milk market appear, especially given these forage challenges right. and the other landscape that we have out here? Right. I can tell you if you would have asked me this about three months ago, I would have been completely wrong on my on my crystal ball outlook because no one. That's could always have, a good way to preface it, <laughs> right? <laughs> no one could have predicted this uh, the natural disaster that happened. Um, you know, I'm I'm not bearish by any means. I think this forage deal is going to really take effect into quarter one and quarter two of next year because we have to remember that dairymen usually have a a decent amount of of crops on hand, right? If you have three to four months of corn silage on pad, some people have ten months. Um, we might be able to get through the end of this year kind of unscathed, depending on what corn prices do. This forage thing is also going to affect the cow slaughter, I do believe. So milk production could see another hit. Cow slaughter could keep climbing um, as it has been. The herd will continue to diminish in size. It, it seems like, you know, if, if, if I think about it, if you don't have forages to feed your animals, what's the first thing that you have to do? You need to start calling, whether that be the bottom 10, 15, or 20% of those animals. Um, they go to slaughter wherever they might go so you can actually afford to feed the animals on farm. How much of this decline of the herd that we've seen over the past year, 50,000 or so over the past year, has been from the smaller operators exiting the business? That's a great question. I think it's been quite a bit. Um, as of recent, I wouldn't just say the smaller, because it could be midsize, even to some of these larger dairies that we see out in the western states um, have just, you know, they're sick of the low prices on milk. They're sick of the high prices on corn. They might have different avenues, like in California, when you have uh, different trees and, and fruits that you can plant for the same amount of water, maybe even less water. Um, it, it's better used to use the land in exactly. terms of profitability. They feel exactly. We hadn't even talked about California. The drought is over for the first time in what six or seven years. That's a friendly factor for those who milk cows. There, isn't it is. It, it is. They, they they're really enjoying that. We're seeing basis kind of um, getting a little better for them on the corn and soybeans, freighting it in and, and getting things trucked in and trucked out um and them joining the federal mark market order they're seeing a better price they're seeing a much better price than they saw last year everyone is extremely happy i've not talked to one dairyman that is unhappy about that part risk management is so crucial that's your area of expertise at rice dairy Mm -hmm. and of course there's now a new federal insurance program that producers uh, i guess are starting to enroll in and it should be embraced better than the previous one from what we hear. There is. Yep, the new DMC program opened up, uh, I think, two weeks ago. You can sign up all the way until September 1st. And everyone that I've talked to, no matter what size you are, you can be 50 cows or 10,000 cows. Um, they have two different tiers in this system. Tier 1 is for 5 million pounds and below. You can set a milk over feed cost of $9.50. 
And I think the last uh, scale that I saw, it cost you like 15 cents per hundred weight. Tier two is built for the producers that produce 5 million pounds or above. And if you buy into tier one between, I think it's $4 and $8 and 50 cents, you can buy into the same realm for tier two. It gets a little bit more expensive as you go into tier two. But the nice thing about this is every FSA office that I've talked to, that's where you have to go and roll and get signed up. And I suggest everyone go in and at least look at it. You are going to get, they're going to prorate it back to January, February, March, and April. And they're going to prove to you with their calculator that you will see a payout for all four months. That is something when I talk to these folks, this has never happened before. They have never been able to go back and say for the past four months, you will get paid out on this kind of, you know, your production, which is huge. Good to have you here with us, Cody. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Cody Coster from Rice Dairy in Chicago, our guest this weekend, as we prepare to get out of June Dairy Month. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. It was a busy day for the U.S. Department of Agriculture today. First of all, we got the quarterly pig crop report, and the USDA reported that inventory of all hogs and pigs as of June 1st stood at 75.5 million head. That number up 4% from June 1st a year ago and up 1% from March 1st of this year. It's the highest June 1st inventory of all hogs and pigs since estimates started back in 1964. Breeding inventory at 4.4 million head was up 1% from last year, up 1% from the previous quarter. And market hog inventory at 69.1 million head was up 4% from last year, up 1% from the last quarter. And it's the highest June 1st market hog inventory since estimates began back in 1964. So that news today from USDA. And then, of course, earlier we did get the uh, planted acreage uh, estimates and some of the stocks estimates in the grain market. So let's take a look at what the USDA said about planting uh, results after the planting intentions report of March. U.S. farmers planted 91.7 million acres of corn, 80 million acres of soybeans in 2019. The corn figure was above the highest in a range of trade estimates in a Reuters survey, while the soybean number was below the lowest of the analyst estimates. The USDA projected total 2019 wheat plantings at 45.6 million acres, pretty much in line with trade expectations. 
I always love to read some of the comments from the analysts on these reports. The one that got the most attention today was the corn figure. And according to Craig Turner of Daniels Trading, I quote, trade isn't going to believe 91 million acres for corn. We should expect all of the numbers to come down some. Everyone is shocked about the corn number. Soybeans, bullish. Farmers trying to plant all that they could. And then uh, the other one that I got from Jim Gerlock, president of AC Trading, he said Indiana's corn acres are up up 150,000 acres. Michigan is unchanged. You just have to drive around here and you'll figure out real quick that's not right. This really makes the USDA look incompetent. So sell your corn at your own peril, buy soybeans at your own peril based on today's data. And as we looked at the price swings at the Board of Trade today, we saw July corn trade to a low of $4.11 a bushel and then at a high of um, $4.55 a bushel. A wide trading swing. And uh, when the numbers first came out, we were down limit at the Board of Trade in Chicago. Uh, soybeans did manage to end the day higher with the July contract up 12 and a quarter cents. Wheat was down 20 and a half cents a bushel in the trade to end the week today. So uh, looking at livestock futures, well, there we saw the... Uh, October hog contract down 45 cents, the August live cattle contract down 35 cents, and the August feeder cattle contract up 90 cents. That's our time. Remember, the markets will be closing early the day before the 4th. We'll be closed all day the 4th of July, and then trade normal hours on Friday. Have a great, safe 4th of July celebration. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson on The Markets.